Religion has profoundly influenced the sweeping American narrative, perhaps more than any other force in our history, from the time before European colonization to the present. The startup National Museum of American Religion is working to build a museum in the nation's capital that will share the story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, inviting all to explore the role of religion in shaping the social, political, economic, and cultural lives of Americans and thus America itself. Join our host, Chris Stevenson, for season two of our podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, as we follow scholars deep into America's religious history and learn how it can inform and animate us as citizens grappling with complex questions of governance and American purpose in the 21st century. Episodes will be released on the first and third Mondays of each month on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab. Welcome to Religion in the American Experience, a podcast series of the Digital First National Museum of American Religion, an institution that addresses the gap in Americans' understanding of the vast and powerful role that religion has played in U.S. history. The story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, including the establishment of the revolutionary and indispensable idea of religious freedom as a governing principle, is perhaps the last great untold story in America. Listeners, to join the museum effort, go to whensorrowcomes.subscribemenow.com, where you can receive, with a $200 donation, a signed copy of When Sorrow Comes, a book by Melissa Mathis about sermons that have come to the aid of America during times of national crisis. Your donation will be used to help us continue the production of this podcast series, Religion in the American Experience. Americans have always thought hard about how to prevent crime and bring about justice with a desire to create a flourishing society. The prison system is a critical part of the punishment and rehabilitation system in the United States, which has the largest prison population in the world and the highest per capita incarceration rate. Because of those and other reasons, there are often calls for prison reform, as is the case today. As the country goes about this work, and because religious thought has always been part of the crime and punishment discussion in the country, the museum thought it would be helpful for all of us to better understand how religion has played a part in the development of the United States prison system over its long history. This afternoon, we have a fantastic panel of distinguished scholars who will, in an hour, help us do this, or at least scratch the surface. Dr. Vincent Lloyd is an associate professor of Christian ethics and theories and methods of culture, director of Africana Studies at Villanova University and co-author with Joshua Dubler of Break Every Yoke, Religion, Justice, and the Abolition of Prisons. Dr. Jennifer Graber is a professor in the history of Christianity and interim director of Native American and Indigenous Studies at the University of Texas at Austin and author of The Furnace of Affliction, Prisons and Religion in Antebellum America. Dr. Andrew Scott Nicky is a professor of religious studies at Manhattan College 
and author of Conversion and the Rehabilitation of the Penal System, a Theological Rereading of Criminal Justice, and of the forthcoming book, Mental Illness, Prophecy and Incarceration, Injustice, Insight, and Insanity. Thank you each for being with us today. We very much appreciate it. The time is short, and we need your help, so let's jump in. Listeners, uh, by the way, if you want to ask these panelists a question, please submit your questions via the chat function, and we will take time either at the middle or end of the webinar to answer them. And thank you, listeners, for being with us. First question, I'll just go ahead and and ask it of uh, uh, Vince. Can you give us some examples, Vince, of how various religious communities have viewed criminal justice throughout American history? Sure. First, thanks so much for organizing this event and for for having us. I'm looking forward to uh, the the conversation, and I always learn so much from um, my colleagues on the on the panel who are probably better informed to to speak historically about these issues. But maybe I can just offer a couple of uh, brief uh, examples, uh, perhaps unexpected ones. So one moment that mind is 1983, just out uh, outside of the U.S. borders in Toronto. Uh, the founding conference of the International Conference on uh, Penal Abolition, right? the, the, the uh, organization, the international organization uh, that uh, talks about, discusses, uh, um, uh, reflects on uh, uh, ending the, the prison system all over the world. You know, this organization was founded in, in 1983 and it was founded by uh, Christian organizations coming together uh, across denominational boundaries. Uh, to uh, Christian organizations that had been working on criminal justice uh, ministry reform, uh, feeling like their work uh, hadn't been um, uh, pushing hard enough or in the right directions and feeling like a a framework of prison abolition would actually be the theologically uh, motivated, uh, the the, the framework that would make the most sense uh, theologically. So the conference secretary uh, of this first meeting of the the prison abolition uh, uh, gathering in Toronto was uh, a Mennonite minister, uh, uh, a member of the Quaker Committee on Jails and Justice was the the conference coordinator. There were, were funds coming from Augustinian, Cistercians, Franciscans, Jesuits, Mennonites, all over the United Church of Canada's um, criminal justice subunit was endorsing the conference. University of Toronto School of Theology was endorsing the conference. So all sorts of different uh, Christian denominations were joining together uh, to support a a radical rethinking of of the prison system at a moment when it really wasn't on the national radar screen um, as a serious, uh, as a pressing issue in the early 1980s. So that's perhaps an unexpected example of the way religious communities have uh, engaged uh, in this yeah. issue. And if I can give a, a second Absolutely. Uh, unexpected example, uh, just a few years uh, before the ICOPA founding conference in 1978, uh, what's often seen as uh, you know the as a founding moment uh, or a founding moment of the restorative justice movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when uh, a judge there in this Mennonite and Mennonite uh, adjacent uh, community in northern Indiana uh, was, uh, try- was um, overseeing a case, uh, the um, uh, person who was accused, uh, Harry Palmer, was a Vietnam veteran. Uh, he had stolen from his neighbor uh, for, to uh, support his uh, family. Um, 
uh, Harry Palmer uh, was subject to a 10-year mandatory minimum sentence. Uh, but uh, the, the judge, uh, after Harry Palmer had started serving his sentence, found out about a, um, a nascent restorative justice program uh, that was being run in northern Indiana by a Mennonite group and, and said, you know, this sentence that you have um, isn't uh, fair. Uh, it goes against God's law. There's a high law that I, I, I think uh, I am uh, ob obligated to beyond the laws of Indiana. And I'm, I'm going to let you, you know, work out a, a program to make restitution to the person from whom you stole outside of this legal system, uh, putting his job on the line uh, and eventually his job, this judge did, uh, because of his commitment uh, to criminal justice reform effectively. And that's another kind of story that we often don't hear about, uh, about the prison system. Uh, but I, I'm sure other panelists have more uh, sort of standard uh, uh, stories of uh, good and bad which, uh, as well. Um, I would love to jump in because that second example about Northern Indiana in the late seventies, I was a school child in that community um, when that was happening. And so I really grew up in the middle of an experiment within a religious community of uh, viewing uh, criminal offenders in a different sort of way um, that focused on reconciliation. So, and it's really part of the reason why I went into the historical business I did. Um, but I do have, a, a, uh, I do want to say something about the kind of very earliest uh, folks who got involved and who really had the kind of initial ideas about reformative incarceration, as opposed to um, as opposed to forms of corporal punishment and monetary fines that had been the standard practice in the colonial era. And I guess the one thing that I think is surprising about it is that I really find among the various Christian groups that were involved, and it was initially really brought about by a lot of Quakers and uh, kind of liberal leaning Christians in that period, but um, I think that was a really actually a kind of unity, kind of like the abolition conference that uh, Vince was just, Vincent was just describing, um, that despite some differences about exactly how you should run a prison and a few disagreements about how, um, how and in what ways punishment could occur that could end up having a reformative effect, these were folks that actually really worked together to build these institutions, to staff these institutions, to be chaplains in these institutions. So all kinds of Protestants, um, uh, Quakers, as I mentioned, um, they really kind of all come together by the 18-teens, 1820s to work on this project. And they really see themselves as united over and against um, what the uh, state and federal officials, the people who were uh, pushing for a more, uh, what they consider to be a harsher punishment. Um, so I actually think that their collaboration, um, despite their theological differences and some of their ritual differences, um, is pretty interesting. Can, can you give us a, a, a sense for our listeners and, and for me not knowing this history. So you mentioned originally in colonial America, it was corporal and monetary punishments. And then you're, you're talking about a group of, of religious communities coming together, perhaps led by the Quakers to do what to, instead of that have prisons as a form of punishment. Give us a little bit more detail here. What was the thinking here? More details perhaps. 
So these were folks who were following up on not only uh, religious impulses from some of their traditions for the Quakers, for instance, it would have been their notion of the inward light that's in all people and must be honored in a certain way. Uh, but there was also in Europe at the time during the Enlightenment, all kinds of legal thinkers who were asking questions about forms of capital punishment, corporal punishment, what, uh, what discipline and punishment should do. And so these were folks who kind of pulled from various streams um, and were really incensed by what they considered almost like wasteful and unethical uh, forms of punishment in the United States, that it did really no good for anybody. Um, it certainly wasn't redeeming uh, offenders. It wasn't bettering the community and thought, in fact, they thought that when people were being whipped in public or hung in public, that that was actually corrupting of uh, the public. So they wanted to create a space uh, in their minds that made punishment have the dual effect of redemption, right? Or uh, reformation in some way. Um, now there's all kinds of questions about whether putting those two things together is possible. Right. Um, but they were committed, they really felt that it was. Okay. And they uh, basically kind of architected uh, ways to create spaces. Um, and so before that, whenever a person, like let's say a person was in jail for committing a crime, they were only in jail until their monetary fine or corporal punishment could be decided. They weren't okay. there to get better. Um, these were the people who said, we can put them there and they'll get better. That's, you know, that's where we can do it. Um, so they're really the architects oh. early on. Okay, fascinating. I, and a good point, and I, both of you, and I appreciate that uh, bringing up, Vince, the very important issue of uh, abolition and restorative justice and, and Jen really pointing to the, uh, to the conundrum of the early Protestants uh, of how to do more than just exact pain. And I think that's where I want to jump in. Um, the Puritan ethos uh, really continues to infiltrate our nation. Mm. Uh, I think it infiltrates us social psychologically, uh, personally, and certainly with regard to our international domestic policy and perhaps in no policy more important than in criminal justice. And, mm. and uh, the, the push and pull uh, between retribution and reform, uh, mm -hmm. to me, is the um, is is a tension in American corrections and in American uh, religious practice that we've never been able to uh, to find our way out of. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, many of you know uh, our Puritan ancestors are really set the template for our understanding of who we are as a people: the city on the hill, mm -hmm. uh, the New Jerusalem. Uh, the, the, the beacon of God's way and God's uh, um, salvific plan for humanity. And, and, but the Puritans were believers in predestination. Uh, and unlike Augustine, from whom the, the concept comes, uh, the Puritan divines did something Augustine would never dare do. They thought they could know, uh, mm -hmm. indisputably, uh, who had received the grace of election and who was condemned to eternal punishment. That being the case, of course, there became an isomorphic relationship between anybody who disobeyed the law and the belief that they were already going to hell. And so a very firm retributive uh, current was unleashed with that, that we've never been able to stand aside from. Uh, just think of some of the cultural uh, things that the Puritans have given us, uh, um, uh, the Salem witch trials, uh, uh, the scarlet letter, uh, sermons by someone like 
rotten mather, <laughs> sinners in the hands of an angry God. And so that's always been at the background. And then the point you make so well, Jen, just now and in your wonderful book, uh, is that there was a, there was a, a, a revolution, if you will, uh, in the 18th century uh, with the uh, first great awakening and then even a greater one in the 19th century with the second great awakening, uh, really spearheaded by the Wesleys and, and Jonathan Edwards, that, that the hard edge of predestination uh, was not final and that salvation could be open to all. It was what the, some of you remember the uh, Revelation chapter 20, the uh, um, belief in the millennium. And this was a, what's called a post-millennial belief that informed all of these evangelical movements that started the, the orphanages and, 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 and uh, poor houses uh, and especially the penitentiaries was the belief that we have this time that God has given us uh, to redeem everyone. And so it's out of that uh, that the penitentiary movement uh, was built, but it could never get beyond the, uh, the tensions uh, of wanting a reform. And yet, as you point again, Jen, in your book, uh, they could never really get away from that mm -hmm. belief that people can't be brought to Christ without inflicting pain. So uh, if I have a minute, I can give some other groups, Chris, but uh, sure. we also want to respect time. Well, no, uh, you, you can definitely do that unless Vince or Jen want to interject something here. Well, I, let's talk about some other groups. I mean, because Vince has already given us a, a wonderful sense that there is now, as opposed to when, at least up until the antebellum years, uh, the belief was the religious community could effect a transformation of human lives institutionally and really in a corporate sense across the country. And But now we have moved by and large uh, to religious groups, a panoply of different groups, and not just Catholics, but mainline Protestants, uh, Anabaptists, Jews, people of all sorts of uh, backgrounds, more are standing outside and, fi and finding critical ways of looking at zero tolerance and three strikes, calling for bail reform, uh, uh, relaxation of drug laws, especially for low level drug use. I think the religious community has played a significant role uh, in being able to stand outside, if you will, as the conscience uh, hmm. of the nation. Not all, not all uh, uh, that that wonderful work has been done by religion, but a significant amount has. And, and let me just wrap up by saying evangelicals who make up, of course, the majority of American Protestants, by and large, still hold, tend to hold on to Orthodox Calvinist belief that people cannot be brought to salvation in Christ, particularly in the penal context without the infliction of suffering, or as you call it so well, Jen, the furnace of affliction still alive and well. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I note that uh, most, I do a lot of work in jails and prisons, <coughs> excuse me, and you may know that the vast majority of Protestant chaplains are evangelicals, mm -hmm. and they have had a demonstrative role in America, the face of American politics and continue to have a demonstrative role uh, in the face of American corrections. So, so just so I understand, the, the prison system as was developed by religious communities thinking that was a way for people to be reformed. Is that right? That that, that, that was a part of this 
post-millennial idea that we can reform the country, that we can usher in the, the, the millennium but in several ways, one of which is prisons. And that's because people are then able to stop and think, commune with God. Am I getting this right? Is that, was, was that the, the motivating religious thought behind moving from capital, corporal, and monetary punishment to prisons? Is that, am I getting that right? I would say that depending on the perspective of the reformer, they had a slightly different idea of what that would look like on the inside. So um, if you go to the Eastern State Penitentiary, which is in uh, Philadelphia, um, that's a place that architected a form of total solitary confinement. A person is by themselves all day. They do some handicraft labor in their cell. They even have their own little individual exercise yard um, that's very tiny. Um, And so you can see in some ways, uh, practices that Quakers developed about uh, inward reflection in their wider religious community get transferred to their notion of how this will happen for folks who are incarcerated. Whereas, you know, a Methodist chaplain would be much more likely to go through and pass out tracts, right? Um, and he might send tracts or Bibles um, and uh, and feel like the best way to make this kind of thing happen is to have a chapel service and sermons okay. um, that come in and punctuate a life of congregate silent labor, where a person is laboring and learning to labor, accepting uh, and really learning their appropriate lot in life, which is to be a worker uh, once they are released. Um, And that then that can be kind of built up and sanctified with this kind of addition of tracts and Bible reading. So, you know, they all had their own style, I would say. Okay. Vince, did you want to say something? I thought I saw you. No. Okay. And I, I think it, uh, it's interesting to think about both uh, the roles of institutions and the roles of religious institutions and the roles of religious discourses, as, as, you're, as I think uh, we've all sort of been pointing out that um, uh, institutions and their uh, characteristic practices uh, can uh, sort of shape uh, sometimes quite physically uh, the, mm-hmm. the of, uh, of prisons, as Jen was pointing out, but the, the sorts of discourses around uh, uh, you know, the, the language of uh, the prison system, which is a very uh, religiously loaded language, right? punishment, mm-hmm. sin, uh, you know, uh, crime, uh, law, justice. You know, these, these are all terms that uh, have overlapping uh, secular sort of criminal justice meanings and mm-hmm. uh, logical uh, meanings uh, yeah. uh, going way back, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so uh, the set of issues around um, uh, prisons are always uh, um, open to uh, influence by um, uh, religious discourses because you know that's the language in which in which we uh, encounter them. Mm-hmm. And well, and one kind of additional sort of factor in all of this is that these early experiments in the 1790s, the early 19th century are all taking place in the Northeast, right? They're happening in places like Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, um, and in which the majority of the people being incarcerated were immigrants to the United States um, and native born people raised as white. 
once you get to uh, like once the prison experiments begin to uh, expand and more and more con- uh, more and more states want to uh, give their hand to this and try it out, um, like for, for instance, Virginia is one of the first southern states to give it a try. And that's going to add then uh, all of the sort of racializing language uh, that comes in sites that have chattel slavery um, and that uh, talk about people of African descent in particular ways and about having souls that are capable of particular things and not of other things that have bodies uh, that operate in some ways, but not others. So once you bring this, uh, once you kind of add to this mix, also um, the context of the South and chattel slavery and views about uh, African-Americans, that's going to add a whole nother layer that is both, um, that has these political impacts, but is totally theologized by these folks um, as Mm. they are justifying slavery um, with their language. It also impacts how they're going to discipline people um, within the prison system. Okay. Well, we've slipped into the second question. I think they're, they're so tightly intertwined. So how religious communities view um, ju- criminal justice and then how they influence the actual establishment. So that, and that's fine. I, where, what is the religious thought over our history as far as, length of prison terms i mean where does the where does the theology where does the religious thought get interjected there because as you describe it these prisons were not so much punishments but just a place to remove these people to let them reform right length of time in prisons i'm so sorry my dog is barking that's okay but i do i have a short answer yes please the early period the prison terms are so short we would not believe it today to look at like no one went to prison for more than seven years and you had to do something pretty terrible. Um, many people went to prison for one year, two years like that was very common. What we see today is absolutely um, a whole nother. Um, it's, it's just so incredibly different from the past. And and yet again, I do think that the spread of these practices into the South and the way that after the Civil War, the prison becomes a way to contain Black people. Um, once you get, you see, you start to see the uh, lengthening of sentences even then, I think. And of course, it's going to happen a bunch in the 1970s with the war on drugs. But like you already have uh, people for very small infractions being uh, taken to state institutions for a longer and longer period of time um, once you get into the post-Civil War period. And I think it's uh, to serve the function of maintaining white supremacy. Mm. Okay. Yes, yeah. Uh, I apologize. I also have a crying dog instead of a barking dog in the background here. But... It's fine. We're, we're in COVID. Everybody understands. Yes. Um uh, right. So it seems like the, the, there's also an interesting shift in the relationship between uh, justice or divine justice and uh, law and um, the, right. the, uh, punishments, um, uh, prison uh, terms um, that, that, that happens over time and particularly over the last half century. So whereas um, before the prison might be uh, utilized uh, as one tool to move in the direction of justice, or to help to uh, move uh, society toward justice, um, the term, the meaning of justice flattens out um, uh, in uh, the the uh, you know from the 1970s to simply mean the law operating properly, prosecutors doing their job, judges doing their job, 
police officers doing their job, prison guards doing their job. So whatever the sentence is that a legislature has decided on, you know, uh, if that's carried out, we talk about that as, as justice. Uh, and the um, higher, more uh, robust, uh, um, uh, more aspirational senses of justice often associated with uh, and drawn from religious communities start to fall away mm. over, over the last half century, which also shifts the dynamics of how we think about length of, of prison term. That's insightful. Chris, uh, because it's a wonderful question. Um, how long should someone be incarcerated, if they should be incarcerated at all? Um, you know, our, so much of our penitential philosophy and construction really comes out of early Catholicism, both the, uh, the monastic prisons, which formed the template for the Eastern State Penitentiary, which was a, really a monastic prison, uh, and the uh, Auburn uh, model of prison was based on uh, Pope Clement XI's uh, prison of San Michel in Rome in 1704. Uh, the point was is that the ethos there was you didn't need to inflict pain because the belief was people were already suffering. And so the question was, in a sense, how long, i.e. as far as a temporal, um, a temporal sentence, but an idea of accompaniment uh, in order to try to bring about an end of the alienation that usually causes people to harm one another. So that's a background. But the problem mm -hmm. with it, and this happens in the 1970s, as you alluded to, Jen, was that up until then, uh, we had what were called indeterminate sentences. And people, judges, made the, the, uh, the distinction not only between offenses, but if you will, in a sort of a psychological reading of the offender in order to try to determine uh, how much time she or he might need in order to uh, uh, come to some kind of realization of harm uh, and some kind of amendment to stop harming before getting out. The problem, and interestingly enough, the religious community was, it was the American Friends Service Committee, the Quakers uh, of all people. And I, I don't mean this in any disparaging way, but in 1972, uh, they published Struggle for Justice and said, in effect, going back to your point earlier, Jen, about chattel slavery, was that uh, indeterminate sentencing was simply a ruse uh, to let white people up and lock up black people. And so it was actually the Quakers themselves uh, who argued for a more determinative sentence. In other words, what we call now truth and sentencing laws, uh, a, more, a more strict approach. And so religion, once again, as you pointed out in the beginning, Chris, uh, really has a, a very broad continuum over which it tries to understand what is the purpose of putting people in prison in the first place? And secondly, what is it trying to achieve? And third, how much time does it take to achieve it? And that conversation will continue. Okay. Uh, this is a great conversation. I'm going to pause a bit, and there are two questions I'm going to put out there for you all here at the halfway point. Um, first question and then we're going to return to some of the things I've written some notes. I want to return to some of what you've said. Question. Um, why are most converting to Islam in prisons? How does this affect the root cause of this system? So she, this uh, listener wants to sort of understand perhaps uh, Islam 
let's do this. Is well, there's the question. Anybody have any thoughts or answers to this question? Let me just put it out there. Yeah, I, I I'll jump real real quickly. Okay. Um, let's go right back again to slavery, uh, and let's look at the ambiguous role of Christianity in the life of Black Americans, uh, and and it's and it's a two a two pronged uh, um, uh, presentation, one of which is beautiful and one of which is terrible. Uh, let's start with the beautiful. Uh, black churches have been the rallying cry and the center for social for, for social uh, service, for community, for faith, and for the civil rights movement. And so you see that Christianity has done a wonderful job in in uh, in bringing. Uh, out the best in our in our African American population, serving that population and continuing to instill in it a hunger for justice. On the other hand, all of the denominations, uh, at least the white denominations, uh, used uh, Christianity as a tool to oppress, to belittle, uh, to denigrate, uh, to punish, uh, to kill in many ways, uh, African Americans. So uh, you look to uh, the, the autobiography of Malcolm X, that, that, that cultural classic, uh, and read, uh, as many of you have, uh, his experience in prison, uh, his conversion, and his realization of what Christianity had done to him and to so many other uh, Black people, and, uh, and the way Islam, uh, black, black Islam, or revealed nation of Islam, generally, but excuse me, specifically, but in a broader sense, Islam, uh, uh, the discipline that it brought, uh, brings to people, uh, look at us in the middle of Ramadan, and we marvel at the self-discipline and the faith and the commitment, uh, the way in which it's able to enable uh, and inspire so many people uh, to, to, to live their lives in accord uh, with the divine law, to, to, um, to control a lot of our carnal desires. So as I said, a, a number of these things, anger against Christianity, a beautiful disciplined lifestyle, have combined okay. uh, to make Islam a very attractive option for many incarcerated people. I believe now it's at least 20% of the incarcerated okay. population identifies as Muslim. And the jails I work in, in here in New York, here in New York, some of them as high as 50%. Great answer. If I could just add one, one uh, additional factor to, to those that uh, Andrew mentioned, and uh, there's a religious freedom element of this story as well, where uh, the uh, prohibition uh, on um, uh, Islamic practice uh, in uh, prisons or the re restriction of religious practice uh, that often uh, meant a, a prohibition or, or extreme limitations on uh, Islamic practice um, uh, was uh, contested not only by the Nation of Islam but by a, a variety of um, um, groups of uh, Muslims uh, incarcerated and with allies uh, um, outside of uh, prisons in the 1960s and 70s. And that sort of model of uh, litigation that was centered, ostensibly centered on religious freedom claims, uh, and so tied to a an American self-understanding and, and constitutional principles, but uh, was also at the same time about the justice of the prison system and the nation itself, right? The, the, the uh, sort of litigating um, religious freedom for Muslims was an opportunity to 
bring into court uh, and gain a spotlight uh, mm. for a spotlight for the uh, sort of injustices faced uh, by uh, not only Muslims incarcerated but everyone incarcerated uh, and sort of Black Americans uh, more more generally. Um, and I, mean, I think that's something that we saw particularly in the sort of heyday of religious freedom uh, litigation in, in the, the prison context in the 60s and 70s, where uh, groups were uh, the the split the, the um, um, dual purposes of this kind of uh, litigation uh, to uh, speak broadly about theological claims to justice, uh, but uh, uh, use as a hook for those claims, um, you know, what kind of food is allowed in, in uh, to uh, those incarcerated? What kind of prayer spaces are are made made possible? These very concrete. Um, uh, demands. Uh, it's a really interesting story to be told there. Wow. And I would say yeah. there's an analogy also for Native people um, that when Native people were incarcerated and uh, uh, also brought cases about restrictions to their religious practice, and it had to do with how you could wear your hair, what kind of food you could eat, did you have access to a religious specialist? And those cases similarly operated, I think, as a way for Native people to bring larger claims about treatment in American history um, and brought them forward. And for some Native people, um, became a way to actually initiate um, spiritual practices attributed and connected to tribal communities that they had actually not had prior to prison life. Um, uh, prior to being incarcerated, they might not have had connection. And so there's a kind of similar moment where uh, for Native people where this is th these things are possibly introduced to them within the environment of prison and in this contested space in which they are arguing for their right as citizens to be able to express themselves religiously and be in solidarity with one another um, because there's a certain kind of religious norm uh, under which they can't fully operate. Um, and that's been the case for them, you know, more broadly in American history. Right. Okay. Thank you. I think that uh, helped with that, that question. Second question uh, from, from uh, this person. Uh, I've noticed a number of seminaries and Christian schools have degree programs in prisons or in prison systems. How does this fit into a Christian understanding of justice and what, what impact has that had? I can say something uh, br briefly about this. So uh, when um, in the Clinton crime bill in the mid-90s, uh, uh, those incarcerated were no longer uh, able to uh, access uh, funding for higher education, the sorts of institutions that continued uh, off higher education in, in prisons uh, without a financial incentive uh, were often mission-driven uh, institutions, and, uh, and particularly religious, and in the U.S. context, of course, uh, that means largely uh, Christian uh, higher education uh, institutions. Um, so before uh, the mid-90s, there was uh, uh, quite a, uh, a um, uh, extensive, uh, expansive environment of uh, universities and colleges that had uh, uh, degree programs or uh, course offerings uh, in prison, but um, when that financial incentive uh, went away, but um, the religious incentive did not go away. Um, right. That sort of uh, created the landscape that, that we have now. And I, I think it, it's an open question what will happen uh, going forward uh, as that financial incentive is coming back, uh, not only through uh, U.S. government funding and the uh, renewed uh, eligibility of those incarcerated for funding, but uh, a secular foundation landscape, which has interests in 
uh, higher education in prisons as well, but uh, has uh, allergies to or suspicions of uh, religious, um, religiously uh, based programming. Thanks, Vince. It's a, it's a very good question, and 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 you said it beautifully, Vince. Um, there are a number of, of Protestant seminaries that are active in prisons, particularly in the South, and interestingly enough, also uh, ordaining uh, people in prisons. A, a famous one, of, of course, I shall call it the infamous Angola prison uh, mm -hmm. in Louisiana, not only has uh, um, a seminary working in it, but is also ordaining ministers. So the question really goes back to, to our, our initial discussion about the, the, the Calvinist template uh, that has set the tone for understanding our, our criminal justice system and really establishing a lot of the moral parameters with regard to it. And again, as Jen has pointed out, it's inability to separate uh, conversion to Christ from support of uh, painful punishments inflicted by the state. And so my question yeah. would simply be, of course, we're pointing here, you know, these are what call, Max Weber would call ideal types. It's not true for everybody. And nor am I disparaging anyone. I'm simply saying that uh, the evangelical focus of many of these seminaries is very conservative, uh, believes very much in a retributive uh, approach to punishment, uh, does not eschew um, inflicting suffering for the noble idea of bringing people to Christ. But they have not been able to separate something that I think early Catholicism and many of the more liberal religious groups have been able to ascertain. And that is a positive anthropology. You know, if you, if mm. you play the, the simplest picture in the world, you know, the, 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 the reformers of the 16th century believed people were fundamentally corrupt. And therefore there was nothing to summon if they didn't have the grace of Christ, there was nothing to summon that was good within them. Mm. Catholic okay. view and the view of the Anabaptists and the view of many liberal groups, uh, Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, and, and others, um, is that you don't need to punish people. That, that sin is its own punishment. And therefore, uh, you accompany people. Uh, you support them. You throw them charity. You provide opportunities. That is a fundamental divide in America's psychological and social psychological right. profile. So once again, yeah. that is not to denigrate uh, faith in Christ or denigrate uh, seminaries uh, in, uh, in penal institutions, but it is to point out that by and large, it has been unable to separate uh, okay. the idea of conversion from support from for state violence. So I wanna add one thing as, Thank uh, you. from the deep history Please. Uh, from the early 19th century on this question, because, and here I'm just borrowing from Michel Foucault, who has written so in, uh, uh, in such a persuasive way in a kind of way that's been very uh, uh, kind of widely accepted, I mean, also critiqued, but about uh, disciplinary institutions, that the effort to make them better stops us from saying, what if we didn't have them at all? Um, and so I've been asked a million times, right, if I want to teach in prison and, you know, I visit prisons, I'm I would be happy to teach in prisons. And yet I always want to ask the question first, why are we making prison better? 
we need to get rid of it. Um, like that's my goal. Um, because ever since the beginning, from the very beginning, the people who started the prisons in New York that I studied um, in 1797, by 1804, they think they have gone terribly wrong and need to be changed and made better and made better and made better. It's an endless story of trying to make prison better. It never works. Um, uh, and so, you know, and I think trying to make it better keeps us from asking, do we need this? Can we fundamentally rethink it? And, and so these, when you say these people early in the uh, 19th century uh, kept wanting to make better, make, were, these, were these people you're talking about religious communities that had initiated this, this effort initially? Uh, yeah. Um, so some of them actually ran the very first prison in New York. Okay. Um, but over time, more and more uh, state officials and public officials begin to take roles in these places and they're starting to have conflicts. And at a certain point, these folks find themselves pushed out altogether. Um, an institution they founded, they no longer control. And so from the outside, they begin to lobby to make a change. Uh, so they have these roles from the outside instead of the inside. I see. Um, and they become chaplains. They go to, uh, uh, to state legislatures um, and, and, but they always, I, I'm always amazed by their persistence because if I tried to do this for decades and failed and still thought it was a terrible institution, I would say, can we try something else? Right. Let me uh, ask this question um, to go back to something Vince was talking about. I think it's important. I think it'd be helpful to listeners to dig a little deeper about justice. Vince, made a very compelling case between religious thoughts of justice. That's a, that's a very religious term, lots of religion in that, but then there's also a very state centered justice, right? And you talk about Vince, you know, we come up with this legislative sentence and when it's reached, we say that's justice. And I think it's, I think we as listeners hear that and we see that difference. What, what is, what is some of the more religious thought going in here uh, to prisons as a place for justice. Jen and Andrew uh, and Vince, tell us more about, especially early on, these religious ideas of justice and then justice from the perspective of the state and the prison. Well, I'll, I'll get us started. And, and uh, of course, I want to hear from, uh, from Jen and Vince. You know, justice is is a uh, what's that? What was the famous thing Felix Frankfurter said? I can't define pornography, but I know it when I see it. Um, it, it it's it's a, such a slippery term, Chris, and uh, and there are so many ways of understanding what justice is. And as Jen has done in her research, and as we have discussed so far, uh, that God's retributive justice uh, really was the first step forward towards bringing people to conversion. So in other words, justice in traditional Orthodox Calvinist approaches, as well as many other groups or many other people in other denominations, uh, justice was the necessary affliction uh, that God imposed, not as an end in itself, but as a heuristic or as an instrument in order to bring about a deeper sense of conversion. And I think, uh, I think our, our panelists would, would agree with me there. And your point so well taken, Jeff, we've never been able to do it. Uh, and that is because there was a fundamental conundrum. I'm a, I, I'm a 
pseudo scholar in, in, in all of penal history. And I can say one thing works, never has worked. And that is trying to make people better by desiring to make them suffer. Uh, it just doesn't work. And I'd so- love to, oh, did, Excuse me? Do oh no. So I'm just gonna say that I think that's, Chris, where, where a lot, at least in Amer from an American context, set the template. Now, there have been many other groups that have tried to see justice from a different perspective. And I won't denominationalize it, but many groups say that God's mercy cannot be separated from God's justice. So in other words, God can't be retributive without being loving and forgiving at the same time. Now, how that little cocktail mixes together uh, is, 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 is the, the, the uh, ambition as well as the task of those of us who are public voices with regard to criminal justice and how we as people of faith mm. ought to view it. But I, okay. I, would set, I would set that as a general uh, outside, outside. Both uh, religious people want the uh, person who quote, quote, is an offender, and that's a whole other question, but let's, let's just bracket that and just say the person who is the offender uh, to be a better person than she was as a result of going through the state process. Okay. Of, uh, of prosecution and sentencing. Uh, now the question becomes, how is it brought about? Can it be brought about, must it be brought about by retribution or can people change right. through right. The, that, that seeing justice through the lens of loving and tender accompaniment and mercy? Great, Jen, you wanted I to- wanna, I wanna like punt this question to Vincent because I would say we live on, you know, all of us today are living on the other side of the rights movements of the 1960s in which language about justice, I think has come to mean certain things uh, in American life and, and certainly in conversations about uh, uh, the extension of human dignity to all people. Um, and so I say that because in the early sources, they don't use the word justice. They just don't. And if they ever do, it's about making sure it's not an unjust sentence, right? Mm -hmm. they, that was one of the ways they talked about capital punishment, right? That if a person was hanged because they stole a horse, that's an, that's an episode of injustice. But they didn't have a sense of justice as a social order that reflected uh, equality and human dignity. So I think that's a more present day question in some ways. And, and that uh, what the period that Vincent is working in has the most to tell us. Vince, that's an entree for you. Sure, yeah. And it, it would be really interesting to, to uh, go deeper into these uh, histories of, of uh, justice and um, justice at different sorts of religious registers uh, at the register of the, uh, religious ideas or theolo uh, the theologizing and then sort of a religious practice or experience um, uh, and discourse at a, at a sort of ground level. But um, yeah, it, uh, so uh, um, uh, certainly the, 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 uh, the civil rights movement um, uh, in the US uh, in the 1950s and, and 60s uh, uh, um, sort of centers a, a kind of uh, justice that um, uh, would, uh, you know, uh, you know, in, uh, evokes a sort of um, uh, new social order uh, that um, uh, deep transformation uh, could could move us toward. Uh, although, you know, as uh, Gary Dorian and others have, have pointed out, there's longer traditions of 
um, the social gospel uh, in the U.S. Uh, that has been uh, talking about uh, similar concepts of uh, justice in the early um, 20th century. And then Derry Dorian's work helpfully sort of pushes that back to uh, abolitionism uh, of slavery, the abolition movement of slavery, sort of, uh, the, the Christian role uh, in that movement, um, uh, not ending when slavery ends, but uh, continuing in, uh, in uh, with new visions of justice sort of continuing uh, to in the lead up to the, the civil rights movement and beyond. But uh, certainly that, I mean, there's a transformation, you know, when the civil rights movement was uh, sort of capturing the uh, American imagination in the 50s and 60s, the, that American imagination was also a, um, a Protestant imagination uh, of a particular stripe. Um, and uh, the uh, American religious imagination of the 80s, 90s, and 2000s is an evangelical imagination, even if most people are not evangelical, the, the way in which religion is talked about uh, in um, uh, public life uh, has you know, uh, taken on the vocabulary of, or at least important elements of the vocabulary of evangelical Christianity. Uh, and in that vocabulary, the role of justice is quite different in the, the sort of um, as, uh, aspirational sense uh, starts to fade and um, the sort of um, right ordering, which maybe resonates with certain Puritan strands that we talked about earlier, sort of uh, 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 comes to the the four. So lots of shifts right. there. Yeah, yeah. No, lots of good stuff we could talk about. Thank you uh, for helping with that. We have two more questions, and it's, we got about 10 minutes left. I want to um, ask one of my own before we get to those, and then I'm going to give you each a, a, you know, an opportunity to sort of give us a parting statement of how maybe a, a really important religious thought in the past with regards to prisons uh, would help us today. The question is, lots of Americans, lots of our listeners view prison as uh, a protection, right? It protects us from people that will do us harm. Uh, what's the religious thought? Is there religious thought behind that function of a prison? Or am I misreading sort of how Americans view the necessity of maybe large prison populations because there are large numbers of persons that could hurt us or our children? Are there religious thoughts behind this, or am I off? I'll, I'll tell you what the New York reformers uh, concluded after running a prison for about five years. They basically said about 10% of people in here are truly, truly dangerous to themselves, to anyone around them, and to society. Everyone else who's in here is not truly like a, a danger to society. And yet they wanted to incarcerate them because that was a chance to uh, reform them, right? So... And I think it's really interesting that we are talking now about, once again, kind of who might actually, uh, who can actually be let out into the community and not, you know, not have their freedom uh, of movement revoked. Um, and it, 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 how we could perhaps imagine more people who are currently incarcerated not being incarcerated um, and, and dealt with in a different way because maybe only a small proportion of the folks who are inside are truly a danger. And that was something those folks concluded early on. Thank you. It's a, it's a, it's a wide question, uh, Chris, and a good one. Um, but there is no religious answer. Uh, just as just as there is the the Museum of American Religion, you know, is not is not trying to elevate any uh, religious group in America, but but to honor them all. 
And so the, the, the real question about what does the religious community think about this, it depends who you talk to, um, but I'd say there's a growing insistence that would uh, link what, uh, what Jen suggested uh, with regard to the early uh, inhabitants of penitentiaries, uh, that that idea hasn't changed at all. Um, you know, that, right. that prisons by and large are not places for criminals, they're places for the poor, uh, for ethnic minorities, for immigrants, uh, essentially, or my, my new book, uh, uh, The Mentally Ill. Uh, so to your, to your viewer, let me just quickly say, there are 500,000 laws in America, the violation of which can put you in jail. And I'll quote the, fa the, the former uh, Harvard Law School professor, William Stuntz, by the law and the book, every American adult is a felon. So now you have to say to yourself, if we're all felons, why are there people in prison? Uh, so I'll, okay. just, I'll just leave that open. There are many American Christians, Jews, Muslims, who believe, uh, like our viewer, that these are truly, most are truly dangerous people. I agree with Jen. There is a minuscule percentage of people who have absolutely no regard for human life and will, uh, with all their heart, to, to do harm to others. But that is a minuscule percentage of the people who are in our prisons. So the question is, are these bad people? No, they're no different in most cases than your neighbors or maybe your politicians. Except they're likely to have been victims of abuse themselves or victims of uh, some you know, trauma. Um, Right. I, I would probably turn uh, Chris's question around, you know, what are the secular reasons or logics that have made us as a culture separate the um, uh, people who uh, we think of as good from the people who we think of as bad. Um, and, you know, it, it seems like uh, one of the um, rich resources of religious traditions uh, are the, uh, is a way in which they help us think about um, uh, each individual as one who uh, causes harm and is harmed. Uh, and, you know, religious communities as, as sites where we can uh, navigate and negotiate those harms that we're always inflicting and, and having inflicted on us uh, and, um, you know, make peace with, you know, those around us, given this sort of fact of our humanity. Uh, and uh, it uh, strikes me that uh, uh, there, there must be some perversion of that, that sensibility of, you know, what it means mm -hmm. to be human that allows us to, 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 uh, you know, uh, class some as, um, you know, such, uh, so um, essentially defined by uh, the, the harms that uh, uh, they uh, may cause that they don't get to count like the rest of us who, who right. have this deep ambivalence in our um, moral lives. Well said. Thank you, Vince. All right. Let's see. Um, here's a question. I was wondering if you could all speak to the death penalty as perceived by and perhaps advocated for or against by religious groups. Um, so we let, let's just maybe one of you feels most qualified to, to answer that. Um, we probably don't have time for all of us to all of you to jump in. Is there one of you that can speak to religious thought behind the death penalty? Well, well, I I I am not in any way an expert. Uh, any more than Vince or, or Jen or Ben, but I will say this, 
Uh, I'm happy to see that there is a growing insistence across the denominational uh, divide, if you will, or, or the various denominations against the death penalty. I'll give you a good example, uh, uh, Pope Francis uh, recently concluded that there is absolutely no zero uh, reason for it, just as Pope John Paul II had concluded before him that there was absolutely no, no justification for torture. So uh, I think there's a growing sense, certainly across uh, uh, most denominations, not all. The funny thing, excuse me, funny thing, uh, the curious thing is that the, the, the majority of Americans, at least in the latest poll I know of, Vincent Jen, still continue to support it. Mm-hmm. So I would say that by, by, uh, by denominational division, the, the most, most denominations have come out, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, United Church of Christ, Church of Christ World Council of Churches, Unitarians, uh, uh, Quakers have all come out against it. But the largest single denomination or Protestant denomination in America are evangelicals. And as we said earlier, we still have that hard-edged Orthodox Calvinism coming from our Puritan forebears who are never going to go away, uh, whose theological template, moral template, uh, continues to inform the thought of many people uh, with regard to capital punishment. What, what, and I'll, I'll just Jen. add to that, that this is an area where a lot of lay people are not necessarily in line with what their denominational leaders are, you know, the, the very ones who are actually speaking out so eloquently against uh, capital punishment. They're, the pews are full of uh, practitioners who still affirm it strongly. And so the question is, will those things ever, will, will, will those patterns converge? Was, is there religious thought behind uh, the death penalty? I mean, going back in history? Oh, lots of it. <laughs> lots of it. <laughs> going back to Jesus, really. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, let's see. Let's go to this fourth question. Unless, Vince, you wanted to say something about, okay, the death penalty. I am an abolitionist. I worry sometimes that in our zeal to reimagine, some of us do not confront the ongoing reality of prison, the human suffering that is happening there right now. How do we square our imaginative ideals with confronting the realities of prison's human suffering and violence against dignity from a religious standpoint? Anybody have a fence? One thing I, I would say about this, I, I mean, I think one of the helpful developments in uh, the criminal justice reform uh, discourse in recent years is an adoption of the once kind of fringy or radical uh, position that the leaders of the movement should be those most affected by the, the problem uh, under discussion, right? That uh, uh, it should be those who are currently or formerly, formerly incarcerated who are setting the agenda and the, the mapping the strategy uh, around uh, these uh, issues. Uh, and, uh, you know, when that's the case, right, when it's those who are most affected, those who are currently informally incarcerated who are uh, setting the agenda, then I think these, um, the, the sort of concrete realities that, that the questioner is uh, bringing up uh, are necessarily at, at, at the forefront or, you know, as, as much at the forefront as, 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 as we can assure that they uh, they be, and of course that that um, sort of movement configuration nicely aligns with uh, various uh, uh, Christian uh, groups. Is, um, 
understanding that uh, those who are uh, most marginalized should be at the center of uh, uh, Christi uh, Christian's uh, uh, ethical and moral reflection, uh, and you know that uh, uh, those you know elites, religious elites, should be taking their guidance from uh, those who are are most marginalized. So I, I think that's a very welcome development. Okay, thank you. Well, let's let's uh, give you each two minutes and uh, and give our listeners uh, an answer to this question. Um, how does our history that we've been discussing, religious thought going into the development, the establishment and development of the prison system in the United States. How does this history help uh, us as the listeners in our current debates in the public square about the U.S. prison system and its role in the American project? So each of you pick out one thing from our history in the intersection of religion and prison that would help our listeners operate successfully in today's debates in the public square. Uh, Andrew, why don't we start with you? Sure. I don't think we can understand prison without understanding the Protestant work ethic. Uh, I say that because the penitentiary, as noble as it was, it was a failure. It was not a failure, I don't think, because there wasn't a beautiful impulse in believing. And again, this is not talking about the war on the poor, but just say, let's take a hapless individual who committed an act of senseless violence. Uh, there, there was never a time when, when it was completely abandoned that that person mattered. And that person's soul mattered. That person's, uh, uh, as many of the evangelical chaplains did, uh, as prison fellowship does today, uh, to try to accompany them when they come out of prison. But the, but the real hard truth is that never once in American history have we ever built anything regarding criminal justice that took the welfare of the person who was locked up first. And most importantly, that person has always been seen to be uh, a tool in order to help make prisons fiscally sound. And so what's happened is that, that sense that prisons must be sustaining themselves has fed private prisons. It's fed the infestation of prisons with corporations that, 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 that eke out uh, a massive projects by paying inmates pennies. Um, this, this sense that, that the best way besides abolition itself uh, would be to really look at the fact that never once in any penal system has the individual person incarcerated been more important than public welfare and especially fiscal welfare. Okay, Protestant work ethic. Thank you, Andrew. Jen? Um, so one thing I would say would be to keep in mind at the present moment, there is the ab uh, abolition movement, uh, the prison abolition movement. But in the past two decades, there's actually been a much more kind of mainstream and tilting to the conservative uh, and uh, prison uh, reform movement, like reforming mass incarceration. Um, and it's got a lot of political conservatives on board, uh, but they, their arguments are, are, are 
quite different than the prison abolitionists, uh, and many of them are fiscal. So I would say one thing to kind of to think about as you're navigating this landscape and want to learn more is that there are people who are coming and, and trying to end mass incarceration for a variety of different reasons. Um, but to me, the ones that seem most radical and community-centered are the ones based in abolition. And I think also have a real, um, uh, connection to the folks who are also talking about police, uh, abolishing police insofar as we're thinking about different kinds of solutions to these problems. So I would just say kind of look at the different parties who are, you know, prison re reforming mass incarceration is out there now in a way that it wasn't 20 years ago. Um, we are talking about it. I mean, even Trump talked about it. Um, so, but you have to kind of ask who's, who's asking for this why are they asking and what do they want to replace it with? Do they want to replace it with prison abolition and community building? Or do they want to, you know, change it into like uh, private companies who benefit off of the labor of people who aren't in prison, but in some other sort of, you know, surveilled kind of uh, experience after breaking the law? Okay, thank you. Vince, last, uh, last uh, word from you as far as a religious intersection of religion and uh, prison in, in U.S. history and how that event or thought can help our listeners today. Sure, yeah, I would just affirm what, what uh, Jenna is saying in, in terms of the uh, uh, rapid change in the issue uh, from the prison being seen as a solution to the prison being seen as a problem, uh, ending mass incarceration as a consensus slogan across uh, politics, but then uh, you know the, the challenge is to, to uh, figure out what that uh, what that means, uh, and you know uh, if we look at all of the you know even most radical reform uh, proposals on the table, uh, ending cash bail, um, uh, releasing all nonviolent drug offenders, releasing all black people incarcerated, about one million people would would leave the U.S. Uh, prisons and jails. That would leave 1.1, 1.2 million people incarcerated in the U.S. The U.S. would still have an order of magnitude higher incarceration rate than every uh, country. Uh, in um, uh, there would still be mass incarceration, right? So uh, all of the reform proposals that we have leave us with mass incarceration. If we want to end mass incarceration, we have to shift the frame somehow. And I think this is where religious histories and religious ideas can really come in and shifting the frame. That's what religious traditions are so valuable for. Saying you know the, what seems impossible in the world, right? What, what seems uh, as if it, it can't be done actually could be done, uh, and it could be done in part through imagining differently with the tools of religion, but in part through uh, mobilizing communities, building communities, building relationships at a, at a very sort of uh, local level. And I mean, I think we saw this happen very quickly in the early uh, 19th century with the religiously inspired uh, slave abolition uh, movement uh, that moved from a very marginal um, position through organizing work, through imaginative work to a, a mainstream uh, a position. And I think we're, we'll see that happen, um, uh, a religiously inspired prison abolition movement in the, in the coming years as well. Okay, thank you all very much. We have been listening to Dr. Vincent Lloyd, Associate Professor of Christian Ethics and Theories and Methods of Culture, Director of Africana Studies at Villanova Villanova University and co-author with Joshua Dubler of Break Every Yoke, Religion, Justice, and the Abolition of Prisons. Dr. Jennifer Graber, Professor in the History of Christianity and Interim Director of Native American and Indigenous Studies at the University of Texas at Austin and author of The Furnace of Affliction, Prisons and Religion in Antebellum America. And Dr. Andrew Scott Nicky, 
professor of religious studies at Manhattan College and author of Conversion and the Rehabilitation of the Penal System, a Theological Rereading of Criminal Justice, and the forthcoming book, Mental Illness, Prophecy and Incarceration, Injustice, Insight, and Insanity. The Digital First National Museum of American Religion is both a place of convening for discussions about current national issues where religion or the idea of religious freedom is in play, as we have done today, and the nationally recognized center for presenting, interpreting, and educating the public about what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, including the history of the revolutionary and indispensable idea of religious freedom as a governing principle in the United States. Listeners, once again, to join the museum effort, and we want you to join, um, go to whensorrowcomes.subscribemenow.com where you can receive with a $200 donation, a signed copy of When Sorrow Comes, a book by Melissa Mathis about sermons that have come to the aid of America during times of national crisis. Your donations will be used to continue the publication of this uh, podcast series, Religion in the American Experiment Experience. Andrew, Jennifer, and Vince, thank you so very much for being with us today and for doing the years of hard work to understand how religion and the freedom that fuels it have played a role in America's criminal justice system. You have helped me and I think all of our listeners understand America in this sense like we never have before and given us vital information that will help us in the coming days participate with more success in the public square in the work to perpetuate and perfect the fragile American experiment in self-government. Thank you each so very much. The podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, is a project of the National Museum of American Religion. Episodes will be released on the first and third Mondays of each month on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab.